So this morning I want to uh, continue with the uh, theme of the Bodhisattva. And the Bodhisattva, as we've been exploring for the last uh, two weeks, is this marvelous figure who is an inspiration to me and I think to many of us at this time because uh, in many ways uh, we aspire towards being able to connect this inner work with helping others, with acting in the world to helping others, to help others. And the uh, model of the Bodhisattva uh, is this uh, wonderful figure that can energize and inspire us. And we've talked about it the last two times. And I want to just be very brief about the Bodhisattva, particularly for people who are here for the first time, and then do a very short review of where we've been, and mostly talk about the ways that bodhisattvas act in the world and talk about action. And I want to, uh, near the end of my talk, I want to do an exercise that will uh, mobilize each of our bodhisattva energy to deal with our most perplexing personal issue. <laughs> So, that's a small agenda. <laughs> so, well, that's, that's my intention. And I want to give some room for, for talking about what we find. So you might actually just reflect just for a moment right now. What is a, an ongoing or present issue for you? Could be personal or interpersonal or something in your work situation or with your family that feels a little bit stuck or challenging or hard. It could be in relation to your action in the world. And just let yourself reflect on that, that challenge. Might have concrete images, imagine situations or discussions, and just stay with that for maybe two or three minutes. So we'll come back um, in a little while to that situation, but you might hold that as a situation, as a challenge. And the exploration this morning about the Bodhisattva can give resources for working with that situation and with similar situations. So let's, if we hold that as a reference point, basically asking, what would Bodhisattva do to echo the common phrasing of the day. What would Bodhisattva do? 
But what would you do as a bodhisattva? And we'll come back, we'll hold that as a reference point and then come back in some detail to it. So a brief review of the notion of the bodhisattva. And I was thinking that there are like four main aspects or four uh, perspectives that we can look at the bodhisattva. And bodhisattva literally means the uh, being dedicated to awakening, dedicated to the awakening of um, both self and others. So, but really making that connection. And on one level, the bodhisattva is uh, an archetypal figure in the history of Buddhism. It's a figure that we have on our um, painting here. There are the, the, the tanka on the wall. This is of Elokitashvara, the bodhisattva of compassion, who has a thousand arms, each with an eye on each hand to symbolize the nature of compassion as both empathic, the vision coming through the eyes, and active, working with those thousand arms. And as we'll see later, very skillful because each of the thousand arms can do something different. You know, so very able to act in a variety of challenging, complex, confusing, mysterious, heartbreaking, wonderful, challenging situations. And, and so on one level, we, we hear about the Bodhisattva Alavakitasvara, or we hear about the Buddha as a Bodhisattva dedicated to awakening, the story we gave last week. Or we hear about Manjushri, who I brought in last time with the, the sword of discriminating wisdom who cuts through delusion. And on the one hand, these are archetypal figures that they, they can be um, quite inspiring and can um, give us energy. And on another level, the second level I was thinking, there also are these wonderful embodied human beings that are in a way extraordinary human beings who express the bodhisattva energy. People like Gandhi, or Jesus, or uh, Mother Teresa, or the Dalai Lama, are people who, for many of us, and you may have your own favorites, who are quite well-known and illustrious and seem like these larger-than-life figures who embody the connection of inner work and helping others and can be very powerful. And then there are the what we might call the ordinary bodhisattvas, the people who are just, uh, who are just there in our daily lives. They may be the, the wonderful teacher that you have who is not, you know, who is not widely known on the internet. <laughs> You know, the teacher who just was just very um, patient, helpful, kind, <laughs> dedicated, and just gave this endless work to help others, and may also have really had a uh, kind of an inner quiet and silence that you may know. It may be your grandmother or your grandfather or an aunt or an uncle or your, um, your friend who just seems working year after year to help, uh, to help other people heal or to just be the kind of person who has that sense of compassion. Or it could be the, the, pers- the ordinary person who manifests a manjushri with a sword of discriminating wisdom, who when everyone else is confused at your, at your meeting at work says, this is wrong, this has to stop, <clears throat> has the sword of discriminating wisdom and the courage to speak up. And maybe has been doing that uh, hopefully with some grace for many years and takes that role. That might be the ordinary bodhisattva. That's the third kind of bodhisattva. And the fourth bodhisattva is you. I imagine my 
itself as one of those Uncle Sam-like photos saying, the Bodhisattva wants you, <laughs> pointing to you. So the, uh, and the Bodhisattva has this history uh, in the tradition that it becomes, it's there present throughout the Buddhist tradition. The Buddha, the Buddha himself, known as a Bodhisattva, who's on the way to becoming uh, the Buddha. And in the Mahayana tradition, the Bodhisattva becomes the central figure. You know, even though the, the uh, qualities of the Bodhisattva are very much present earlier, in Mahayana tradition, the, Buddha, the Buddhism that starts in India, but that goes to northern India, to Tibet, and uh, China, and Japan, and Korea, and Vietnam, the, the Bodhisattva is at the central, is at the center of spiritual practice and becomes the one, the, the kind of um, model. And the, on, the, on the handout, there are the list of the ten qualities which the Bodhisattva develops. And we know that, uh, as we've mentioned a few times, one of the wonderful things about this list is that we can see ourselves, if we're inspired to say, yes, my life is about doing inner work but also helping others. In that sense, we're in a way uh, walking in the footsteps of the Bodhisattva. And what's beautiful for me about this tradition is it's not simply an ideal that's left to be abstract and left to be something that sounds good, but how do you do it? It's confusing. What's very wonderful for me is that there's a list of ten qualities, and there are actual practices and trainings that one can work with to develop these qualities. And what we've been encouraging the last few weeks is to uh, work maybe with one or two qualities a time at a week, uh, in a given week, and to see that during, if this, if this resonates with you, that during the time we're looking at this, if that model of connecting inner and outer work um, is important for you, as, as I imagine it is for almost everyone in some way, then we can say, well, let me... Let me uh, focus on this. Let me work as we've done did the first week with looking at our intentions and our vow and, and the quality of patience. And as we did last time of looking at the role of meditation for doing that work. And this, uh, this is not to say that everyone has to be completely outwardly active uh, all the time. You know, that one of the things that I know from my own experience that you probably know is that bodhisattvas have cycles. You know, that sometimes there's more of a cycle of inner work. That, you know, I know for myself, you know, growing up and being um, kind of an activist in college, and then I really got into meditation. And I really focused on that for several years, and my activist friends thought I was, what, um, being escapist in some way. You know, but it actually was really central that there are these cycles. Sometimes we focus more on the inner Sometimes we focus more on the outer. So that's really, that's, um, that's kind of, I think that's kind of implicit, that bodhisattvas kind of know, okay, here's the time to look more inward. Now I have to train in a more focused way. Maybe I need to train more on meditation or I need to work more uh, in an inner way with, uh, with cultivating wisdom through study and through practice. And then other times there's more outward movement. You know, sometimes, okay, I'm going outward into the world and I happen to have this job and I have a really challenging boss. So I guess that means I'm developing the quality of patience <laughs> or I'm developing the quality of skillful means, you know, how to, how to speak to this person or whatever. And so there are these cycles. 
And the, the, but the qualities are powerful because we can train in them. We can say, here is my curriculum. I want to be, I want to really develop to connect inner and outer work, and here's the curriculum I follow. And I'll just review briefly the ones we've, we've looked at. The first that we looked at is actually the eighth on the list. It's vow or commitment. And we looked particularly at its link with the quality of intention and talked about intention in two main ways. One is through being aware and almost like setting an intention before one's activities. We can do that when we meditate. We can say, my intention now is to really be present with what's happening. And that's working with intention. Or my, you know, if we go to a, a meeting, my intention is to really listen to the other person. Or if we have a difficult discussion with a friend, it's to say, let me really listen carefully and, and um, encourage, it might be, let me encourage compassion. And that's working with intention. And it's a very powerful and central practice to keep on coming back to our intention. Because the hardest thing about for bodhisattvas is that they forget that they're bodhisattvas. You've noticed. <laughs> that we, that we, just, we get caught up in the way our minds work. We get caught up in situations. And working with intention can bring us back. We can just say, let me just... Let me just be aware. And so having an intention practice, and it doesn't take long. We can do it for 30 seconds before a meeting. We can do it for a minute in our meditation. Uh, we can do that before a discussion. And just that repetition of that, it doesn't mean we always follow through perfectly because it's really, it's really more the setting of intention and not the demanding, you will totally remember this intention for the next three hours, Donald or else you're a bad bodhisattva. That's, that's, it's more the, just the continual setting of the intention, and then we do our best. So bodhisattvas have a quality of uh, mercy and of uh, not getting too hard on themselves. That probably should be the 11th quality for a bodhisattva, not being too hard on yourself. But I think somehow I think it's a little bit different in our culture than in the culture of ancient India. I think... I don't know that for sure because I don't have distinct memories of ancient <laughs> India. But I, I sense, let's just say that um, for myself and for many people, being hard on ourselves is really pervasive. You know, and it's a big thing, and we've talked about that at different times in the, in the context of working with judgments. So the second aspect of uh, vow or intention is connecting with our deeper aspiration to... to um, to be a bodhisattva or to develop in certain ways. And that we can do, again, by, by tuning into it um, at, at certain points at the beginning of our practice. And something that I'm thinking about for next time is to actually have a chance for people to make a more uh, formal vow to themselves in your own language that I will, I will make a vow to... It might be something like this, that I will make a vow to work to connect my inner work with the helping of others, you know, and to have that be more formal. In many uh, Mahayana traditions, there is a kind of a formal uh, bodhisattva vow. Sometimes it's taken publicly, as in Tibetan traditions, and sometimes it's repeated, uh, as in Zen practice at the beginning of the day. And I'm wondering how many people would be interested in doing something like that. It could be totally your own language. It would actually be fairly private. 
just on your own, but we'd, we'd create a space for maybe 15 minutes to do that. How many people would be interested in that? Okay, I'm gonna, I'll work that up. And for you, maybe just think of what is the language which works for me? Because it's gonna be, we'll basically probably just sit there and you'll make the vow to yourself in your own language and keep it pretty private. And then I'll, you know, I'll give a chance if anyone wants to share it, to share it publicly, but there's no need to. So I think that's, that's a, a helpful way to do it. So think about what kind of language, and it can be, you don't even have to use the language of the bodhisattva. You can use the language, like I say, I really dedicate myself to growing internally and to really to helping others. And this is, you, might, you can use your own language, but I would say this is the core of my life if I were to do it myself. Something like that. So what this does is it can give more power to that, to that intention and vow. So if that resonates with you, think about that for the next week and think about the language that would work for you. That again, can be just kept to yourself. And then we talked about patience. Patience is a big one. <laughs> it's this quality of being able to be present, especially with challenging circumstances, without being reactive. It's to have the long view. It, it's very connected, as we saw last time, with wisdom, with knowing that things change, with knowing that there are causes and conditions for how things will manifest. That if we have a difficult situation, it's probably been a long time in the making and that the solution may similarly take a while. And so it's this quality of being able to be present in a balanced way, often with challenging situations. And we looked at that at some length. We also looked at the quality of meditation, uh, very central to bodhisattvas. Bodhisattvas do spiritual practice. They, they have a disciplined practice where they train themselves to look at their minds, to look at their hearts, and to work to transform, we might say, the difficult or challenging or stuck places in our mind. Bodhisattvas study um, the nature of the emotions. They study the, how the mind works. You know, and I, last time I gave a story about my own working with uh, quite intense fear. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Those of you who were here, the fear that was actually just almost like taking over my body. And what sometimes we can do in retreats or in a supportive setting like this is we can give energy to look at, to study, to be present with, to work skillfully. And so I think that part of the training of bodhisattvas is how to work with challenging emotions and to be more skillful with them, to be more skillful with them uh, in ourselves and to be more skillful with them uh, as we find them in interpersonal relationships or in a work situation or in a, um, in a, in a dyad, in a friendship, in a committed relationship and so forth. And so we train in meditation and we study our minds, we study the patterns and we connect this with wisdom. That wisdom is another quality that I'll talk a little bit more about next time. But wisdom is something we also train in. Classically, it's the wisdom of the Four Noble Truths. It's the ability to see what the source of suffering is. It's the ability to be present with suffering and to know that the roots of suffering, as in the teachings of the Buddha, are in some kind of compulsive grasping or pushing away which is in some ways a, uh, a variety of the same thing, 
of a particular experience or person or something that we're going through. That is, that is in some ways, we have to learn how to be present with, this, with something, that we can see that when we have a physical pain, that we have that pain and we can have pain without suffering. The suffering is the trying to push away the pain, the contraction around the pain. And I almost always mention the fact that doctors say that 80% of what patients experience as pain is not the original sensation, but the contraction around it. The contraction, the reaction. We see this, can see this really easily with our emotions. You know, someone says something or does something, and what's actually hard is not actually necessarily the, the being present with that, which may lead to sadness or anger, but it's where our minds go with the situation. Right? It's the, that I have this difficult interaction and I'm preoccupied with it for the next week and it takes me into a funk. That's what the suffering is. And, and it's often because it's actually difficult for us actually to be present with the actual primary experience that happened. That we go off into stories, we go off into blaming, we go off into reactions. And this is, this is to make, as it were, uh, real and practical, that teaching about suffering. You know, and we can see this in the world very, very easily. You know, what are, you know, what is going on in the Middle East or in most wars other than someone experiences pain and reacts to it by inflicting pain on the other as if that's going to solve the situation. You know, I mean, from that perspective, you know, a lot of human life and history is getting caught in that kind of compulsive pushing away, grasping, attacking others and so forth. And so the bodhisattva trains in understanding that, that guideline. The bodhisattva trains in that, and in one's own experience and looking elsewhere, uh, and trains to know also that there's the third truth, that peace in a given situation is possible. It's really the motivation behind this department of peace. It's saying that, that it's not the human condition to be perpetually just caught in conflict. You know, sometimes in our more despairing moments, we think that, don't we? We think, oh, this is just the human condition. It's just lost. It's just, you know, let me resign from the human condition. Let me be reborn as a zebra. You know, or, 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 you know what, a, a dolphin. I mean, I know there actually are studies of dolphins that show they may, ha- they may possibly have higher moral development than human beings. Right? Some of you probably have known those, some of those studies. And so, but the, that's, that's the despairing perspective, right? And what we, um, what we can actually know, again, we can know this from our inner experience and train in it further so that we know, yes, there is suffering, yes, there are the roots of suffering, but yes, there is also a peace that's possible. And so the bodhisattva keeps training in that, keeps knowing that peace with more and more depth over time until it becomes like the roadmap for life, the roadmap for um, the human condition. So it moves away from that more despairing perspective through personal acquaintance with the possibility of peace. Very, very central. And then the fourth truth is the variety of ways to bring about that peace, the so-called Eightfold Path. And so the Bodhisattva trains in that wisdom perspective and brings it out into into life. There's a powerful story that I heard from uh, Cornell West. Some of you know Cornell West, the African-American activist and social critic, and he tells this very powerful story of um, 
uh, a woman named Mamie Till, who in uh, 1955, she had her son, Emmett Till. Some of you know this story. It was, there was a PBS special on it. Emmett Till was a 14-year-old African-American boy from Chicago who went down to live in, uh, for the summer with his family in Mississippi. And one day he was at a store and he happened to, apparently, so the story goes, he whistled at the uh, woman who was the clerk behind the desk. And later that evening, the um, woman's husband and brother and I think a, a, a cousin came and they um, snatched away Emmett Till from the uh, house he was living in in the middle of the night. And they basically took him and murdered him. And he was discovered with, um, you know, like a 200-pound weight and barbed wire wrapped around his body, you know, pretty mutilated. He was discovered in the river. And they brought him back to Chicago for a um, funeral. And this was actually one of the catalyzing events for the civil, modern civil rights movement, 1955. And they brought him back there, and they um, had an open casket so you could see his body. And his head was about five times the normal size of a head. And um, his mother, Mamie Till, spoke. And she said, um, you know, with his body right nearby, she says, I don't have a moment for hate. I'm going to work the rest of my life for justice. Very high, uh, very high level of uh, moral perspective very deep insight without ever having heard of the Four Noble Truths into those teachings, right? And um, that's, the, that's actually a good segue for talking about action because the Bodhisattva is one who on the basis of wisdom and training in meditation and patience and um, clear intention and vow acts. Bodhisattvas don't sit around and watch TV all the time. <laughs> well, they, they probably watch um, they probably watch PBS some, and they, <laughs> and they um, they probably check out the Fox News just to see what's happening, <laughs> and so forth. Uh, but Bodhisattvas act. Uh, there's a wonderful story from. Um, from the Zen tradition, a Zen teacher was asked, what is your understanding of enlightenment? What is your understanding of enlightenment? And you might imagine the answer. He might say, you know, the sense of being one with everything. Or it might be luminous, luminous space. Or it might be what? Um, you know, everything is transparently interpenetrating with a magical glow of mystery. <laughs> or being a Zen teacher, he might, he might say nothing and just ring the bell. <laughs> or he might say, what is the meaning of enlightenment? He might say, you know, the dog shit in the alleyway. <laughs> Some of you know that tradition, right? Sorry for the language if it's your first time at Spirit Rock. <laughs> so in any case... Um, so, what, so all those possibilities. So what did he say? What he said, what his answer was, what is the meaning of enlightenment? He said, appropriate response. Is anyone disappointed? <laughs> 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 
Um, but it's actually, what it means is actually there are peak experiences or there are beautiful experiences, but what constitutes that sense of awakening is the moment-to-moment -moment response and action. Uh, the moment-to-moment mo moment response to whatever's happening in the situation. And so it's actually a, a very, in a sense, a very ordinary, but a very profound uh, answer. I was going to say response. <laughs> Um, and that, that stayed with me as it stays with uh, many of us, that there's this um, quality as we do this training in the various uh, virtues, in the, in, in the qualities of intention and patience and meditation and wisdom, there's more and more an ability which is expressed in the seventh of these qualities as skillful means, the ability to act in some responsive way. And I think as we train in this, it becomes actually more and more intuitive. Bodhisattvas get training. You know, they do get training. They get training in meditation. Modern-day bodhisattvas would get training in conflict resolution, or you get trained in diversity work. Or you, it's important to do these trainings. You know, to maybe train in communication skills, or train to uh, some might be therapist, or work with um, you know international diplomacy. So you need certain training. But as people get more developed, the bodhisattvas, the, the response becomes more and more intuitive. It's, that, it's like that study that I referred to probably a few months ago that really stayed with me. It was done by two people at Berkeley, um, uh, Hubert and Stuart Dreyfus. And they studied people who were experts in their field, who were really, whether it was a musician or a martial arts teacher. And what they found was they have to start, like a musician has to start by learning the scales. But as you get more and more towards what they call being an expert, it all becomes more and more intuitive. And so the expert musician's practice isn't all that different from a performance. You know, and, that the, and it's, actually, uh, you know, it's actually in the tradition of Buddhist teaching, as it's been handed down, most Dharma, you know, at Spirit Rock, we often have these notes and we have these, all these books we bring along and so forth. But actually, the tradition is it's, uh, it's actually, you don't use notes for Dharma talks. Maybe, maybe that's my advanced challenge. <laughs> but you don't use notes, but it's more intuitive. And so there's this quality where as we practice, the action becomes more intuitive, more uh, able to be very clear about the situation and respond. And so this notion of skillful means or skillful action is, has a sense of being able to be very attentive to the particular needs of a situation and have all this variety of tools and means. So sometimes the bodhisattva is said to have all these arms, each of them with different tools. That's one image you can imagine. Okay, and, and, it, and you choose the, the tool you need in an intuitive way for the situation. And so there's, in a way, there's a sense of flexibility. Bodhisattvas don't have one tool and one method, but they're very flexible based on the needs of the situation. So it's a very, it's a very interesting, very interesting model, kind of tailored to each person. So the bodhisattva in training to be skillful in action has to work through a lot of the qualities which uh, stand in the way of effective action. And you can think, what stands in the way of effective action for you? Well, some of them might be confusion, distraction, sometimes being lazy. In the book, 
the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, a lot of these ways are named, things which stand in the way. So some of us may need to look, what stands in the way of effective action for me? What stands in the way of appropriate response? It might be fear. It might be being really concerned about self-image. It might be um, tendencies to procrastinate. Does anyone have that tendency? <laughs> Just one or two. <laughs> okay. so, so we have to look at that. And then we, as we mature in this, and I think we can look at our we might want to, let's look at our action the next week as saying, how can I be skillful in my action? Traditionally, how we, we, there was some further training in, the, in various aspects of it to be able to speak well, to work with skillful speech, to know how to bring peace to a situation, to know how to build something very positive. You know? And I'm thinking that there are all these different kinds of actions. You know, uh, I've mentioned Joanna Macy says, for the healing of the world, three kinds of actions are necessary, and they're different, and each of us may focus on one of them. We don't have to all do the same thing. She says some people really try to stop uh, harmful things from happening. That's their action. Really, that's their main action in the world. Some people heal the harm. Some people work with the healing. Many of you may be people who focus on healing, on really helping people with emotional healing or physical healing. And a second group of people try to build, uh, she said, build really uh, new ways of doing things. She says what we need is to create new institutions, to do things in a different way. So it might be to have new ways of healing the body, new ways of medicine, new ways of education. And of course, many of the old ways are quite good, but we might, we need, for many of us, we need this change at this time. And then she said others teach us how to change our very way of seeing and perception. They help us. So it might be a yoga teacher or someone, a meditation teacher, can help just to see things in a different way. A lot of teachers can do that. And so as we think for ourselves, what is my action? It's really to think of um, what are my gifts? What is my broad action in the world? But also to think of how, in a particular situation, can I be skillful? And so I want to come back to that that um, situation that you might have had. So let's just think of, again, of the challenging situation for yourself. We'll, we'll end with this. So imagine this challenging situation. If you want to close your eyes, if that's helpful. Could be an interpersonal situation. It could be just a, a personal stuck place. You need to do something that's hard to do. And imagine yourself in that very situation right now. Visualize the way the room is, if you're in a room, or the way it is outside. The decor, the furniture, make it very real. And see yourself in that situation that's challenging. Imagine the dialogue. 
And now there's a knock on the door. Or if you're outside, someone comes up to you. And who is at the door? It's actually a bodhisattva who inspires you. It could be the Buddha, or Kuan Yin, or your grandmother. Someone who you find is very, very skillful in action. Get a sense of who that might be. Could be archetypal figure or real people. It could be Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King or Gandhi. And the person's at the door and comes in the door. You open, and that person actually, you're going to do a little exchange. That person is going to be you for a little while. So you exchange bodies. And that person who came to the door actually looks like you, but inside is the bodhisattva. And now it's going to act in that situation. So just let yourself visualize for a few minutes what happens. Now let the, the interaction come to, or the action come to a close. And you now go back into your own body, and the person who's visited says goodbye, say thank you, or whatever you want to say. And however you want to say goodbye, do that. And then just being present with one's own body and listening for the bell. can thank your visitor again. <laughs> so how was that? It was great. <laughs> Does anyone want to report what you experienced? You don't have to, Maggie, but uh, anyone like to? I could. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a grandmother of a bunch of children between 5 and 14, 15, and I'm a big help to the parents and the children, and my problem is that um, of knowing when to stop, and um, so I tend to just sort of, some of the children have emotional problems, and, and I've been doing research about various emotional problems and special schools they could go to, so forth, and uh, I get swept into this, and I get kind of um, 
too involved because I'm too old for the involvement that my body is, is wanting to uh, try. And um, I'm, I'm, my eyesight isn't that great and my hearing isn't that great and my mind is a little bit too confused. So um, the, experience <laughs> the experience was very useful because uh, Quan Yin came to the door and uh, said, hey, you don't have to be doing all this. Just take it easy, have fun. <laughs> And tell your children they're doing a great job and, and take a vacation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyone else, please? Anyone else like to talk about who visited and what happened? Please. kind. Yeah. And would you be okay with to say who visited? Was you. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something I would say. <laughs> yeah. And so, but there's something about doing that practice that's a little different even from hearing the words, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It, makes it, it makes it our own yeah. in a little way. Please, any, anyone else? Yeah, please. I just had this wonderful feeling at the end of this exercise. Kwan uh, Yin did come to the door and he didn't quite get things resolved. <laughs> <laughs> I just had this wonderful concept that went through my mind of thinking in these difficult situations. Well, that's a job for Kwan Yin, you know, yeah. or that's a job for um, the other. A Manjushri? Manjushri. Yeah. And let let that be, let that happen. Yeah. Let that assistance come into you. So that kind of en- enter into your being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it was a lovely thought. I'm going to uh, continue with it. Yeah. So this is a, I, I think there are a few things to take from this practice. One is, of course, we can do it any time. But who was that visitor? (laughs) I had images or echoes of childhood television. Who was that masked man? (laughs) Who was was the visitor? Uh Part of you. Yeah. And yet, somehow, it's not always accessible, right? And so we need sometimes to... um, find ways to access it. So, <coughs> can do this practice. Was that enough time to get into it, people? Have you need a little more time? Okay. Could, could have used a little bit more. Okay. 
Um, but you can do that practice. It's really a part of ourselves. And you can do that before a difficult event. Just use that. Or, and you can, you know, if Kuan Yin gets stale, call in, call in the Dalai Lama. <laughs> you know. So, so it's, something, it's a practice that we can keep doing. It's really to, to kind of how do we get that intuitive, skillful action energy in us? And how do, we, how do we increase it? How do we keep it? How do we, again, the most difficult challenge for most of our daily lives is not actually to do anything like this. It's actually to remember to do it. That's always going to be the hardest. How do we actually remember? Because once you remember, we're pre- actually pretty good. Yeah. So any other, anyone else want to report? Or are there any questions about anything from the talk? Please. Well, I was hesitant to talk because I had an interesting experience, I thought interesting to you anyway. Yeah. I um, chose the Dalai Lama and um, my situation, which I'd rather not give all the details, but okay. it's a very practical situation and some of it has to do with money issues. And so my doubting mind was saying, well, what does the Dalai Lama know about all this? And I'm a more <laughs> practical person to come in and then I'm thinking, well, who can I, who has all the qualities of the Dalai Lama but also is real grounded in the world and so I'm going through all these people, and then that's why I needed more time because yeah. I. Have have some interviews. What was nice about it was at a certain point I said, "Forget this," and I just took the Dalai Lama mm-hmm. into me, yeah. and I just said, "I feel nice and calm and yeah. peaceful, and what will happen will happen." So that was good. Um, but I still, part of me was saying, gee, I wish I had someone who had the practical thinking. So it sounds like your um, exploration has two parts. Yeah. And you did the first part. But the second part, you, you need also. So, so some, and it's actually interesting because oftentimes situations are like that. That we have some piece, you know, like we can have the patience or we can have the clarity about uh, being kind. But maybe, we, maybe there's another piece that we need that we need to access. And sometimes in situations we actually need some actual technical knowledge. Of course, this isn't to say that just being kind does everything in life. It goes a very long way, but sometimes we actually need detailed information. And so it's, it's wisdom to know that. Yeah. Yeah. But that sounds, um, but isn't it interesting? Some, I mean, I find when I, you know, I did it myself, of course, and I find something which has been hard and like my mind goes, around on. And I just do something like this exercise. And I mean, I think the fact of having meditated and being in this environment helps a lot also. But just can really, sometimes just really quickly get clarity and say, this is what, so it's, it's a, I think the point of the exercise is partly to solve all your problems. (laughs) (laughs) Or all all our problems. But it's partly, it's mostly to say, this is a tool which we can continually use. And that it actually, that access to knowing what's skillful is there for all of us. Yeah. Please. Just like what you were just saying, I was thinking, oh, this is so hard, and I never figured it out. And what I got from it was that Kuan Yin came to the door, and it was like a no-brainer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of the times that we're stuck, it's not because we don't know the answer, it's because we can't access it. 
for, you know, another way to say it is, and it's very easy to see when people get really, it's why, you know, when we get in these kind of convoluted conflicts, uh, we, you know, if we, if we would take a vacation for a week, we'd actually come back and have some clarity. Because, you know, one way of saying it is that there's a lot of noise in the system. And we can't actually be creative and, and get to what we actually know. That's why that's the characteristic of a lot of protracted conflicts. There's just, they're so involved with it. You know, and again, it's not hard to see. Look at the Middle East or something. And people are so involved with what happened last time and who did this. And, you know, and, you know there's kind of claims of the last inflicted pain. And it goes back and forth like that. And somehow people can't really look at the big picture. That's why often mediators are really crucial because they can help frame things or why people need um, uh, somehow to decrease the level of noise, you know, which can happen in a variety of ways. It can be quieting the mind or taking a vacation or having someone outside or accessing creative imagination. That's why a lot of conflicts, we might say, are failures of the imagination. You know, a lot of the reasons we get stuck are not because it's necessarily a really hard situation, but because we can't access the imagination. There's a kind of failure of imagination. You know, not to blame us, it can happen for a lot of reasons. But it's that actually sometimes the solutions are very easy. Uh, but we just can't get there because we're, whatever, preoccupied by something. It's, in, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe a last reflection or question or report? Please. Yeah. I had a conflict with my uh, sister a week or two ago. Mm -hmm. And I tried to apply this method to doing it differently, but I couldn't. In fact, I wouldn't. You wouldn't? No. <laughs> but I don't feel good about it. That's the end result. <laughs> <laughs> Or are, you, are you saying that you actually you wouldn't, meaning you actually didn't want to resolve it? No. <clears throat> I, um, I didn't want to, it would have been, uh, I didn't want to do the thing that she asked me to do. Yeah. That Kuan Yin? That, no, or, that, that my sister asked me to do. Okay. <laughs> I, I brought in Kuan Yin in an effort to, uh, to, do, to do that differently. Oh, yeah. I thought about it for a while, and I just still thought the result, I, I wouldn't be happy with, with, with the result. With what your sister asked? Yeah. Yeah, so that may, that, so that, that's valuable information, right? So it's not like the situation was resolved, but you got some, you got some further information about that request? I guess so. It, yeah. I mean, it was sort of a, like I'm saying, the result was, I still not happy. I mean, not... But it was painful not to be able to, for me, not to be able to, to help her in this situation. I mean, yeah. I thought that the help that she asked for it just would have made my life too unpleasant. Yeah. And Quan, Quan Yin agreed? Huh. don't know if I brought her in for a final consultation. Okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it, sound, it sounds like the exploration is not quite complete. Okay, so, but... Um, yeah, so maybe, maybe, maybe that was the factor of time. So maybe to give a little more time, because it, sound, it sounds like there are a lot of nuances to the situation. And 
and it sounds like maybe to um, maybe I I would suggest inviting Quan Yen. I, I always I tend to call her Quani. <laughs> <laughs> invite invite Quani in again, or whatever you like to call her. And but it sounds like it sounds like that situation needs a little more focused attention. That you're you got some information, but not maybe could use a little further. Does that, does that make does that make sense? So, yes, I mean, a lot of you, we may have asked for some response on very challenging situations, and it, it may, take, um, may take sitting with that a few times or, or, or more, you know. And, and it's almost like uh, maybe one thing, when we get clear about something, one thing opens up, but that only tells us about our next step. And then we may have to keep on repeating that. So it's remember, remembering that uh, comment what is enlightenment, appropriate response. But the key here is it's not one appropriate response. It's continual appropriate response. Continual appropriate response is. And so that means that um, if your mystery bodhisattva resolved all your issues, it's a momentary response and it can be very helpful and very good guidance, but that we'll have to keep accessing that wisdom um, in the future. So I hope that's not a down note to end on, <laughs> but I think it's not a surprise. That it's, it's, really, it's really to say this is ongoing work, but that, that accessing can be just very, very powerful. It's mostly just to take us back to this very basic very basic wisdom that's there when our minds get quiet enough and we remember what we actually know. Yeah. So, so thank you. And let's, let's just sit for a minute or so to close. And the focus for this next week can be skillful action. If you'd like to take this exercise and really uh, do something like it or your version of it or bring your, as it were, your wise bodhisattva self into the challenging actions of the next week. That could be a great focus and something maybe to remember in the morning. Okay, I'm going to access that and maybe do something like that exercise once or twice a day can be helpful. It's also fine if you want to stay with one of our earlier emphases on intention or patience or working with meditation. But I'll offer that uh, the work for the next week on skillful action. And then also remember that next week we'll give a, a little bit of time for a more formal um, focusing on a, a very personalized uh, vow that we make to ourselves probably give a little bit of time near the end for that. So you might reflect on the language, the words which work for you. So just in this last 30 seconds, just let be present, whatever, um, whatever intentions are there for you for the next week.
And so we end with a very uh, traditional dedication of merit. May what's been helpful and valuable, fruitful from the morning, be offered outwardly beyond this hall for the benefit of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.